1 John chapter 3. I'd like to read a couple of verses there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it, is not, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Father, we're grateful to You that You are purity and truth, loving kindness and mercy. And Father, as we study this passage this morning in 2 Samuel, we'll see that even as it shines through the life of David. Lord, we desire to be like Christ, that your attributes might be reflected in us and that we might be the light and salt of the world in which you have placed us. We know, Lord, that we're constantly in battle with the evil system of this world and the perpetrator of that evil. And I pray that we will be alert and aware of his, of his uh, plans and of his efforts that we might ever be on guard in trusting you for the strength to serve you in the midst of this alien world. Father, I pray that you will bless us this day. I thank you for the work of the Gideons, and I pray that you will empower it and that the resources will be there and the Bibles will be in the right places at the right times to minister to people just as we heard in the video of these two men as examples who, through reading the Gideon Bible, came to know you. And in the one case, it not only saved a soul, but it saved a life. And so, Lord, I pray that you will keep us ever part of the broad picture of the kingdom of God. Uh, save us from our myopia, just groveling around in our own little world and, and not thinking past the city limits of, of this town, possibly, and realizing that we're part of the work that you're doing all over the world. Give us a real sense of, of purpose in serving you, at least through prayer, uh, in support of the missionaries that are so close to us. Thank you for this day and what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 2 Samuel in the first chapter, and I'd like for us today to read at beginning at verse 17. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the Philistines exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than, than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothe you, with luxurious, you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen? 
and the weapons of war perished. We have seen, of course, in the first verses of this particular chapter that a particular Amalekite came and reported that supposedly he had been responsible for putting an end to Saul on the battlefield of Gilboa. And he reported all of the events which transpired, he said at least, as a result of his having, of course, I believe, told a lie about what he had done. Uh, David had him executed for daring to put his hand on the Lord's anointed, something David himself had refused to do. No matter how foolish or how faithless Saul had been, he had been the Lord's anointed king of Israel, the very first king Israel had ever known. And as such, he, re he represented the glory of the nation. Just as in our society today, we call the president of the United States the first citizen of this country. And wherever he goes and wherever his wife goes, they represent the United States of America. Whether we like it or not, that is what they represent. And so it was with Saul. Although Israel had never had a king before, although he had, he had done, acted foolishly in many ways, he nevertheless represented the nation of Israel. And in a sense, therefore, he was the glory of the nation. Jonathan, of course, we know was not only David's dearest friend, but he was a man of great valor and great integrity. And so what we have here is a poem that is chanted by David as a lament over these two fallen warriors, which he calls, and we read it there in the scripture, the Song of the Bow. This was a very appropriate title because the men of the tribe of Benjamin were famous for being skilled in the use of the bow as well as in the use of the sling. Apparently the Benjamites just had a, had a penchant more towards war and, and, and the skills of weaponry because we read how often they themselves were involved in war. And of course Saul and Jonathan were both Benjamites and so this seemed to be an appropriate title. Like Joshua's poem, you may remember way back when, when Joshua won the great va uh, ba uh, battle in the Valley of Aelon, 300 years before the time uh, that we're reading about. We're told that that poem was recorded in the book of Jasher. And so we have here the statement that David's poem was reported or recorded in the book of Jasher. We only know of the book of Jasher from these two references in Scripture. No copy of that book has survived. It somehow passed away in antiquity but apparently it was a collection of poems, possibly military poems, because that these at least, these two were, it was famous in that day. Beginning in verse 19, we have an honest, heartfelt eulogy for two great men in Israel. These are not just obligatory flowery words that David has to give because, you know, at one time he'd served under, under Saul. He gives this lament from his heart. He refers to Saul and Jonathan as the beauty and the mighty of Israel. And David, of course, we discover in this passage, would loathe to think that the Philistines were exalting and praising themselves and their gods of the great victory they'd had. They had defeated Saul and Jonathan, these mighty warriors, and by implication they had defeated Israel and therefore the God of Israel. One, one of the things we know about David was he was always jealous for the name of his God. And David was really upset that these pagan, uncircumcised Philistines 
could be rejoicing because of this victory that they won on Mount Gilboa. Poem has three natural sections to it. Each begin with the word, with the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. You'll notice it's repeated three times in the poem. The first section uh, of, the, of the poem is found beginning in verse 19 and going through verse 24. And it's, it's, a, it's a lamentation and it's also a praise. A praise for Saul and a praise for Jonathan. It, what, what he's doing is he's lauding them for dying with their boots on, as we would say in, in our day, dying bravely and dying heroically. Just as I drew the analogy before, as did Custer and his men at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Verse 24 particularly points out that despite his faults, Saul did bring honor and he did bring glory to Israel because the scripture does not even recount all the victories that Saul won in nearly 40 years of, of kingship, all the victories he won over the enemies, which is the reason the Israelites selected him as king. They wanted someone to command the armies and to defend them. So they didn't have to worry about when God was going to call up a shofat and, and, and pull together an army and try to deal with an enemy. Now they had somebody on the spot, so to speak, with his own little private army almost that, that could put out the fires here and there. And, and, and he did that many times, many of which are not even recorded in Scripture. The second section of the poem covers verses 25 and 26. And this commemorates David's love for Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan loved, David and Jonathan loved each other very, very dearly. Um, there was a friendship there unlike any other friendship David had, apparently, in his entire life. But there are people, as you well know, in our society today, who have ulterior motives. And, and they will take the words in verse 26, and they will imply from that immoral a relationship between Jonathan and David, which is, I mean, it's a despicable thought, has absolutely nothing to do with the character of either David or Jonathan. But there always are people looking for ways to, to validate uh, their lifestyle. And this, of course, has nothing whatsoever to do with that. The last section of the poem is found in the last verse where we read, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. It's almost a lament. It's almost a, a cry of despair. But it isn't really. It's a, it's, a, it's a verse of closure. Closure on a life in the reign of a man who had been chosen by God to defend Israel against your enemies, and that he did, and he died doing that. So he, was, he, he deserved honor, at least for having fulfilled the purpose for which his nation had called him into the kingship. Reading on in the second chapter, beginning at first verse, obviously. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he, the Lord, said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron, meaning Hebron and its immediate environment. 
Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Then David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have so shown kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me as king over them. Although Saul was dead and buried, and the heir apparent to the throne, Jonathan, was dead as well, David does not make any attempt to force his way to the throne of Israel. I mean, this is something that, that characterizes David throughout his life. He doesn't try to force God's will. He lets God do what God will do in God's time. He knew he, of course, had been anointed by Samuel to be Saul's successor. So he doesn't go around with a banner, you know, like modern politicians with a big banner, you know, elect me because I'm the greatest guy there is around. You know, he could have sent messengers throughout all Israel demanding that they all come and, and bow before him because he's been anointed by Samuel as the successor to Saul. There was no other widely acclaimed person that uh, should come to the throne at that moment when, when the news finally spread throughout all Israel that Saul and Jonathan had died on the mountain. And, you know, was there an immediate feeling within the country? Oh, well, we better go anoint so-and-so or crown so-and-so as king. No. But David knew that the army of Israel was still in existence. That the troops that had fled off the mountain of Gilboa, although they had been routed, they, they had fled and survived. And he knew that they were being led by Saul's first cousin, Abner. So, instead of rushing to claim what was rightfully his, David again gives to us a wonderful example of seeking the Lord's guidance. Ah, you know, so many times we think we already know what God wants and we just rush ahead without stopping and seeking his guidance step by step, day by day, moment by moment. In, in, light, in light of this, I'd like to read a passage uh, from the fourth chapter of um, Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, reading at verse 6. This is a passage all of us have read many times, but making this passage real is another thing. It says, be anxious. <laughs> no, it says, be anxious for nothing. <laughs> but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a promise. <laughs> and how often do we apply it? You know, anxiety is, 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 is a human attribute that all of us possesses. And some of us are more driven by it than others. But we don't have to be anxious. The scripture says that we should put everything before God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehensions, will guard, guard, stand guard around your heart, ward off the evil one and ward off anxiety in Christ Jesus. I think all of us need to be reminded 
of that particular truth, probably hourly. I, I don't know true for all of us, but because the enemy is always going around whispering in your ear, oh no, you know, watch out, this bad thing's going to happen. Oh no, you shouldn't have said that, you shouldn't have done that. Well, maybe you shouldn't have, but whatever. You know, to, to live an anxious life and always, you know, nail-biting and wondering what's going to happen next and that's not the way God wants us to live. And so David is a powerful example of, well, here I am. Saul is dead. I know I'm supposed to be king, but what, what should I do, Lord? Where do you want me to go, Lord? David didn't have it all planned out ahead of time. You know, the, in our society, we, we hear all the time uh, instructions about we should have goals and we should be goal-oriented. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have goals and that we shouldn't be goal-oriented. But what I'm saying is sometimes those goals need to be modified because the goals that we set might not be the goals that God is setting for us. And uh, some talk about our, we should have goals for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Well, that's fine. You know, fine to have those goals, but expect them to be modified. <laughs> Uh, because we don't know the future, and uh, God leads us step by step. He leads us with a flashlight, not with a floodlight. And, and so we have to walk that way uh, in constant, you know, communion with Him all the time. So what does David do? I, I think that when he goes before God and asks this question, he calls Abiathar, you know, the priest that's with it, been with him all these years now, and who has the Urim and the Thummim, has the ephod. And he probably said to Abiathar, I want you to cast the Urim and Thummim and tell me what God's response is to my prayer. He was in Ziklag. Now, if you can remember, Ziklag is way down in the southern part of Israel, and Hebron's in the south as well. But Ziklag is, is out on the very fringe of Judean territory. It's, it's not terribly far from Beersheba, which is the southern traditional limit. Of the, uh, of the Israelite nation. And so, and Ziklag was burned out. The Amalekites had torched the town. And so here's David sitting amongst the ruins of a city way out in the fringe of the uh, territory. And so obviously he couldn't administer Israel from there if he were to be crowned king. And so he goes to God and says, where shall I, he says to God, shall I go somewhere? God says, yes. I don't want you staying here. I want you to go somewhere. And then he says to God, where? And God responds directly to him and says, I want you to go to Hebron. Now Hebron was about 30 miles north and slightly by east, back upwards uh, from Ziklag. You remember Hebron? Hebron was the city where there were giants in the land when the Israelites came into the land to conquer it. And remember the mighty warrior Caleb? Caleb said to the Lord, give me this mountain and God gave him the mountain, and Caleb, and, and Caleb conquered the city of Hebron. And then Joshua, when he, gave, when he allotted the land amongst the tribes, he said to Caleb, this may be your possession. This is your personal possession, the city of Hebron. One of the things to remember about the city of Hebron is it was the burial place of the patriarchs. All of the patriarchs were buried there with exception of Rachel. She was buried at Bethlehem. But all the rest of them were buried here. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives were buried here at Hebron. It is also the very first place that Abraham ever permanently settled down in the land of Canaan. When he came from Haran in the north, up in what is today Syria, by God's direction he came down to Canaan. 
he stopped at uh, Shechem and, and uh, put a tent out there, and then he moved on to Bethel and built an altar there, and then he moved on, and he went down to Egypt, and God said, Egypt is not where I want you. <laughs> and so he comes back up, and the scripture says he settled at Hebron. He made friends of the people at Hebron. He had an alliance with the people at Hebron. And so it was the very first permanent settlement of this nation in Canaan. So Hebron had a long tradition of being a very important uh, town. It's located, as I told you, about 30 miles from Ziklag. It's located on the ridge route, the route that runs north and south through the, along the ridge of the hills of Ephraim and the hills of Judea. It's located about 3,000 feet in elevation, one of the highest uh, village towns actually in all of Israel. And it's in a kind of a commanding position. It was a walled city from ancient times. This was no little village with just a dozen people living in it. Was a, it was a city of thousands and it had walls around it. So it was a far better city for David to have as his center of power than Ziklag, which was an unwalled village that had been burned down anyway. And, and so here was the walled city of Hebron. Now, of course, we have to think in those terms of that day. Because if you were to have walked up to the great city of Hebron in those days, you'd say, this is kind of a small place. <laughs> you know, because most of those ancient cities were no more than just a, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen acres. I mean, how much space could you wall in? And so even Jerusalem in David's heyday was probably not more than 30 acres. You know, so we're, we're talking about small places, especially for uh, those of us who are used to the World War II phenomenon of signs appearing out in, in the Philippines saying Los Angeles city limits or, or you know, out in somewhere else because of the concept of, of a spreading Los Angeles and how, how big it is. Even the city of San Francisco, which is one of the smallest cities for its population on this planet, well, at least in the United States, I should say, is huge compared to the cities we're talking about here. But nevertheless, it was a walled city. And so in obedience to God, David took his family, his wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, and he took the families of his 600 men and his 600 men, and they all moved up to Hebron and its environs. Now, if you go, we won't go to the 12th chapter of 1 Chronicles, but if you read in that passage, you discover some of David's mighty men, some of David's 600 men are actually named there. The majority of them, we discover, were from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah and Gad and Manasseh. Those four tribes made up the bulk of the 600 men that uh, were with uh, David. And what's interesting about that is to discover that there were quite a few among the 600 who were Benjamites. Benjamites? Why would Benjamites be with David? Saul and Jonathan were Benjamites. The tribe of Benjamin had sort of the leadership position. So why were they with David? Well, we could only you know, speculate as to why they were. But there were some with David. These men had been with David now for at least a decade through thick and thin and mostly thin. And now they were hoping that their faithfulness would pay off, that maybe David's going to get some, get the position of king, of course, and they should then all be on the ground floor. They had served with David for all these years faithfully, and of course they were probably counting on being, you know, secretary of state and secretary of war and, you know, head of the army and head of the navy and head of the air force, if they had any air force and, or navy. And it's, they certainly saw the move to Hebron as moving in the right direction anyway. 
probably not too long after David had moved to Hebron, his fellow Judeans came to anoint him king over them. Now that's all the anointing is. It just is anointing of the tribe of Judah upon David. Now the tribe of Simeon was pretty much totally integrated with the tribe of Judah, so it'd be like those two tribes at least uh, anointing him as king. Even though that was only a partial fulfillment, at least it was a step in the right direction towards national rule. Again, if David had been an impetuous, impatient person, he would have been really, really disturbed because what we're going to discover is the anointing of, of David over Judah lasted for seven years before the rest of the tribes decided that maybe they should make David their king too. <laughs> you have to put yourself in David's place. You know, he'd been promised this. He'd been chased by Saul for, a, for 10 years across the landscape or some length of time like that. And, and now he, he, he is, you know, Saul's dead. He should be anointed. He's supposed to be the successor king. And yet it takes all these years for it to happen. It just illustrates that God's timetable and our timetable do not necessarily coincide. We always want things to happen faster if they're good or slower if they're bad than maybe God's plan. And so that all comes back to this resting in the Lord, being anxious for nothing, casting our cares upon Him, because otherwise we're going to go around all the time disturbed, which isn't how God wants us to live. He wants us to live in shalom, in peace. Although some may have seen this obedience, this, this crowning of David by the tribe of Judah, as obedience to, to Samuel's anointing, but I think many of them came simply because they wanted a Judean to be the king. We don't want a Benjamite to be the king. We want a Judean to be the king. We have to always realize that even in the midst of fulfilling God's will, there are people who have another motivation. From verses 4 through 7 in this uh, passage, it seems that David may have been expecting the rest of the nation to come along pretty soon here and follow up in anointing him king over the whole Nation. After all, they all knew him. It was David who had slain Goliath not that many years ago. David who had led Saul's mighty warriors out and defeated the Philistines and others time after time after time. So David was known and, and certainly had been spread around that David had been anointed by Samuel. Well, some of the Judeans related to him that the men of Jabesh Gilead had gone over there and taken the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and his other sons off the wall of Bethshan, and that they had taken them back and buried them outside the walls of their city, Jabesh Gilead, as an, in honor of, of Saul and Jonathan and the other men. And so David responds to this by sending messengers to Jabesh Gilead to commend them. And since some of his men were Gadites, he was happy that Jabesh Gilead, which was located in the tribal territory of Gad, had been responsible to honor Saul in this way. And so David's message, David sends a message in those verses that we read to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Was it a verbal message? Was it a written message? I think it was a written message. And so David wrote down this message and the messengers carried it. And there are several things of note we ought to, to glean from those four verses. 
of that message. First of all, we discover that David genuinely cared for Saul. He wasn't, you know, just inventing this. He wasn't just surfacely saying, well, I honor Saul, but I'm glad that dude is dead. You know, he, he really was sad that Saul was dead. And he harbored no, harbored no animosity towards his memory. And this is a mark of godliness. One of the things you keep finding in David, you know, we, we so get, we have a hard time divorcing ourselves from David's sin with Bathsheba and, and, and his sin later on in numbering, numbering the, the people when God said he wasn't to do that. We, we get so carried away with that that we sometimes forget how great a man David really was and how godly he was, how his, uh, God's attributes shone forth through this man. Maybe more so now than after he became king because he'd been, he's been in the cauldron. He's been, he's been under pressure. Uh, he, he's been chased. He's gotten himself in some pickles and God has saved him. And so maybe, maybe he's a little more careful at this time than he would be later on when he got to be king. Secondly, we discover that David invoked the blessing of the Lord upon the people of Jabesh Gilead for their kindness to the Lord's anointed. That's our role. We're to invoke blessing, not cursing. We're to bless one another, not curse one another. And so David exhibits this attribute. Thirdly, there seems to be a subtle call in all of this for them to acknowledge him as their king. He doesn't say it flat out, but it seems to be implied here that I, I commend you for this. Now, probably you should come and join in <laughs> anointing me as king. Fourthly, we discover the significance of a word of appreciation. This is a good example to us of the importance of encouraging one another, giving one another thanks, expressing words of appreciation. We, we need to appreciate one another simply because we're brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Again, let me read from the, in this case, from the first chapter of uh, Philippians at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Are we confident of that? Are we confident that God is able to perfect his will in the lives of each one of us? I believe he will. I believe that, of course, we're responsible to pray for one another. Scripture tells us to do that over and over again, pray for one another. But Paul was confident that in the lives of the Philippians, God would ultimately perfect them in Christ Jesus. You and I are not perfected yet, right? Uh, most of us have a bump or two here or there. Feet of clay are still troubling us. <laughs> we have, uh, what, what would you call it, gout <laughs> of our clay feet. But God is at work, and I think we do encourage each other in the growth in the Lord. That's really part of our responsibility. This, let me just say this. It kind of came to my mind right now. We have a, we have a tendency to think that, uh, I'm not speaking of all of us here, I know, but I, all of us can have a tendency to think that we're the ones who need to be receiving. 
we're the ones who need somebody else to come up and say something good to us and encourage us and not to view the fact that that should be our role as well. All of us, no matter how mature or immature we are in the faith, we can play a role of encouragement to one another. And, and that should be our role. There are obviously some people who need it more than others, but my prayer is that they will come to the place where they realize they can also serve God in, in this way. Fifthly, we have here an exemplary prayer that the Lord would reveal to them loving kindness and truth. What a prayer. You know, I think that's exemplary to us, that we should think while we're praying, pray that God will review, reveal His loving kindness and His truth uh, to, into the hearts of those for whom we are praying. These are basic attributes of God. And they were per first powerfully proclaimed to Moses. Remember on the mountain, God said, I am loving kindness and truth. And then David kind of echoed it later when he wrote in the first verse of the 20, 10th verse of the 25th Psalm, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. If we do his will, all of his paths are loving kindness and truth. They may be hard, may have rocks in them, but still it's loving kindness and truth. And then lastly, David promised to show goodness to them. This, of course, is another godly attribute, goodness. And he was God's reflector of that into the lives of these people. Because the men of Jabesh Gilead had literally put their lives on the line to go take down the bodies of these two men. They could have just left them rot up there. But for the honor of Israel, the honor of Saul, and for the honor of God, they took those bodies down and they buried them. And they risked their very lives in doing that, going you know, literally into the pit of hell in order to pull those bodies out of there. And so David promises to show goodness to these men, these people of Jabesh Gilead. Well, next uh, Sunday we're going to look at to the problem that arises relative to Abner. Abner, who was commander of the army of Israel and was first cousin to Saul. He had his own plan of how it was all going to work out, and it wasn't God's plan.